Welcome to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett McGarry. One of the biggest TV shows in the galaxy makes its return this weekend. Plus... I'm Jeff Braun. We'll tell you what we thought of Borat 2, and I'm revisiting some classic MCU movies. And I'm into season three now of a show I first told you about last week, The Crown. And if you don't watch this show, I'll tell you about an incredible episode from that third season that you just need to see. He's back, baby. Baby Yoda, that is. The Mandalorian returns this weekend for its second season on Disney+. Plus. Show me the one whose safety deemed such destruction. You must reunite it with its own kind. Where? This you must determine. The songs of eons past tell of battles between Mandalore the Great and an order of sorcerers called Jedi. You expect me to search the galaxy and deliver this creature to a race of enemy sorcerers? This is the way. The Mandalorian is a Star Wars show set a few years after Return of the Jedi, so Rey and Kylo Ren would be kids at this point, I guess, or maybe not even born yet, and focuses on The Mandalorian, a guy who looks like Boba Fett from the original trilogy. He's also a bounty hunter, as I gather all the Mandalorians are. They have an order with rules and sayings like, that is the way, and they never take off their helmets either. In season one, he found what we've been calling Baby Yoda and was tasked with protecting the little Yoda, and it looks like in season two, will be a continuation of that presumably he'll deliver little yoda to wherever he needs to and he gets in adventures along the way it's very much a, a space western and the mandalorian is clint eastwood the show was sort of a surprise hit when it debuted last year i mean it's star wars so obviously people were excited and going to watch it but the surprise came because it was really good usually star wars fans even more casual fans can find a lot of stuff to complain about with anything star wars but it seemed like everyone pretty much loved the mandalorian i like the fact the episodes weren't too long there weren't too many of them it's all quite simple they don't you know defeat themselves by trying to do too much or be everything to everyone and like all star wars properties they also had a fun robot involved baby yoda of course steals the show he's super cute as opposed to regular oda yoda who's super ugly the mention of jedis in that trailer though is very intriguing like Weren't we under the impression after Return of the Jedi that Luke Skywalker was the only Jedi? And it seemed that way with The Force Awakens too, didn't it? I mean, I guess they did mention he had trained other people than just Kylo Ren. I can't keep it straight, but I'm sure Disney has it all straight. And Brett, I'm looking forward to whatever they throw at us with Season 2 of The Mandalorian. I still remember when I heard that they were doing this show, and when I saw the first image of the Mandalorian, I thought, is that Boba Fett? Is that uh, supposed to be someone related to Boba Fett? I don't really care. I just, I did not care. And this was before I even started to lose my enthusiasm for Star Wars. I think I was just getting overwhelmed with Star Wars, right? Because Disney had its big plans where they were going to release a movie in the primary saga and then a Star Wars story in between and then another main saga and then another Star Wars story. And it was just going to be Star Wars, Star Wars, Star Wars. Like even by the time The the Last Jedi came out in theaters, it was the third Star Wars movie in three years and it seemed to lose its just the the significance of it. Like Star Wars... A Star Wars movie is an event, right? And it's an event because it only happens 
uh, every few years. But Disney wanted to change that formula, and then they were throwing in this TV show, and I just kind of didn't really care. And I didn't even, I don't even think I bothered watching the trailer for months after it came out. But I got curious because people started talking about how you know, there was a lot of buzz about it. So I figured I should at least check it out, especially since it coincided with the launch of Disney Plus, right? And sure enough, that first episode hooked. I was hooked, line and sinker. And I loved this show. I know that first season wasn't perfect, but. It was just fun. It was a simple story uh, with a, a character with some pretty cool skills, for one, pretty cool costume, and the values of his people were certainly interesting. And it wasn't bogged down by any of the stuff in the movies. Like, there was no politics that screwed up the prequels. And I don't know. It was just a good, simple story. Baby Yoda, the, the fact that that thing caught fire the way it did in pop culture. I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but it it is kind of surprising uh, just how big Baby Yoda became. But overall, I was so excited about that first season of The Mandalorian, and I cannot wait. I was, though, hoping that by now, my cable provider, which is Shaw, I was hoping that they would have incorporated Disney Plus into its... Uh, cable service, like it's a PVR platform, because I have access to Netflix through my PVR, I have access to Amazon Prime through my PVR, but not Disney Plus, so I still got to do it through my phone. Brutal, that does suck. I, I do it through my laptop, which is hooked up to my TV with a HDMI cable, because again, I don't, I've got a different cable company, but also the same problem. I don't get the Amazon Prime video through mine either, I, so you, you're luckier than me, you got that. I only get the Netflix. I think... I, I have to double check this I have, because I, I'm pretty sure some like 4K TVs or smart TVs might have Disney Plus built into it. So if I just get out of 12 years ago and update my television, then I could probably do it through my TV. Because now come to think of it, I think the TV I've had, I've had since like 2008, knock on wood. Most uh, like a buddy of mine had a plasma TV. He had a Panasonic plasma TV that he had to... Re, uh, he had to replace it three times in the first two or three years because it kept getting these weird lines on the screen. But I've got this LCD TV that just keeps chugging along. So I haven't needed to replace it. It still looks fine, but it might be nice to get a 4K TV. And if it has Disney Plus built in, even better. Not that it looks garbage coming because I just use my, I just Chromecast it. I, I pull it up on my phone and then I Chromecast right. it. It's just not full, full HD and it's a little darker than I'd like. But not the end of the world. Like when, when you talk about, I'm not going to complain about that. Oh, I have to watch The Mandalorian in 720p <laughs> instead of 1080p. Who cares? I still get to watch it and it's great. I do hope that the, because last year I remember I, I tried to watch that first episode. It took me a while to get it because I think there was there were so many people on the streaming service trying to access it. It took forever to load. The Chromecast kept crashing. It was brutal. I had to wait, actually, I think until... Maybe it was the second episode. I had to wait until the next day. I just finally gave up because it was locking up for five minutes at a time. So I had to get 10 seconds of dialogue, and then it would stop for five minutes. That was I would think that by, that by now Disney will have beefed up the 
beefed up things on their end to handle the traffic because, like you said, it was brand new. Disney Plus was brand new when The Mandalorian came out last year, and they probably didn't really know what the demand for any of their streaming services would be. So, yeah, that's something to look forward to. And then with the TVs too, Brett, I mean, we were we were born in a generation where, you know, you didn't get a new TV until your TV broke. That's how I was raised, and as long as my TV keeps working, I, I don't even think about getting another one. And just because, well, for me, shopping of any sort is a pain in the butt. So I'll be—I'm fine with my 50-inch plasma until it breaks on me. And I'm also—we're just lucky with the Mandalorian season two that it's coming out when it is, because the first season debuted just last fall, but they wrapped up filming for season two, I think, on March 6th. So they got—they oh, finished wow. filming just before. The pandemic really sort of kicked it up a notch, uh, so they were able to complete the post-production in a safe way. And now we have season two of one of the most highly anticipated shows on TV. So I am jacked for The Mandalorian season two out this weekend on Disney+. Plus. Up next, we're going to look at a different streaming platform because they launched their own gigantic feature last week, Borat 2. I can't remember the title, but how could you remember a title as long as that? A review of the new Borat next. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff. He's Brett. And it's been out for a week now. We've both had a chance to watch Borat 2. About a year ago, I released a movie film which brought great shame to Kazakhstan. But now I was instructed to return to Yankee Land to carry out secret missions. I go to America! Sasha Baron Cohen surprised us all just a few weeks ago when he revealed he'd quietly filmed and produced a sequel to his 2006 smash hit Borat, or by its full name, Borat, Cultural Learnings of America for Make Benefit Glorious Nation of Kazakhstan. In that movie, he went across the U.S. using his Borat character to mock some of the sillier sides of the states and to showcase some of its much darker sides. And it was all to genius and hilarious effect. Now here we are 14 years later and we've got Borat 2, or by its full name, Borat subsequent movie film, Delivery of Prodigious Bribe to American Regime for Benefit Once Glorious Nation of Kazakhstan. What do you say? No, it's not me. Boy, come back. People may recognize my face. I would need disguises. I will take this to be a fat <laughs> like American man. Yeah? This is a good one. <laughs> Part of the fun of the first movie, of course, was he was pulling the wool over everyone's eyes. They assumed Borat was a real person, not just a character. The jig is up to some degree. A lot of people recognize him now, so he often has to wear a different disguise. But even without the disguise, he did still manage to find some people who took him seriously. Rudy Giuliani coming under fire right before the movie came out after it was revealed. He had a rather compromising scene. Uh, the movie's getting solid reviews, 85% on Rotten Tomatoes. Brett, what did you think of Borat 2, subsequent movie film. I really, really enjoyed it. I didn't know what to expect, so I almost feel like I need to watch it again now that I know what we got, because I wondered how much of this is going to be legitimate, how much of it is going to be staged. For example, there's a scene where Borat's daughter goes to meet an Instagram influencer and learn how to be a sugar baby. And I had to, so I immediately Googled Borat Instagram influencer to find out who is this person and is she, a, like, 
is the person we're seeing on a screen on the screen a real person? So turns out it was she was an actor or she was playing a role. So she was she may be an Instagram like she is a, an Instagram model from what I can tell, but uh, she I, I don't think she's actually married to some rich Georgian and uh, she was just told she was being hired for this global production and just play this role of you're teaching this young woman how to be a sugar baby. And uh, she went on to, to coach this young lady, to coach the daughter to be weak and to all this other goofy stuff. Uh, and then she later found out she was in a Borat movie. Like she didn't know until she saw the movie. So <laughs> that's kind of funny. And we're hearing about other people involved where they were hired under pretenses like they thought they were going to be in a documentary about runaways and uh, he spoke to a nice old woman in a synagogue and she he later learned or she learned later that she was in a Borat movie so she feels duped the uh, the Rudy Giuliani thing wow that was uh yeah that was pretty pretty creepy regardless of what he was doing with his hand down his <laughs> pants the whole thing was creepy why would he suggest to yes. this young journalist hey you want to go to the bedroom and he's he's patting her on the side on her hip that was just disgusting but i'm not going to get into that whole thing the, it's impossible how could you possibly catch lightning in a bottle again that first movie caught us all off guard because unless you wa- unless you watched the Ali G show you didn't know who Borat was so very few people yeah. on the planet knew who Borat was now everyone knows who Borat was and I also really liked how he didn't he, he got all of his catchphrases essentially out of the way right away. I'd have to go back and watch again, but I think he said a, he had his not joke within like the first 30 seconds. <laughs> so he got that out of the yeah. way. I think he only said very nice once. I think he said my wife once and he just kind of got all that stuff out of the way. And But the, for me, the, the, the main draw was the woman who played his daughter, Maria Bakalova. She is amazing. She stood side by side with Sasha Baron Cohen and was completely fearless. She was such a genuine surprise. And it was really neat to see what if, if she doesn't become a big star out of this, I would be completely shocked. But if I have to give this a review, I think I my initial review is four couch cushions out of five. I really dug it. That's pretty good. I think I'm probably leaning that way, too. Yeah, she is phenomenal. Like, I've always been amazed at how fearless he is doing stuff, and she was, like, right there with him. Just I couldn't believe that there would be two people that could actually do that and, you know, be so effective at it. And like you said, uh, the f- it's a natural occurrence in sequels that it's, you know, hard to recapture the magic of the first time. The first time around, we were amazed about some of the prejudices people carry. And now, sadly, I think those things are just far too common and far too, you know, in the spotlight too many times. It's the real shock, like from those hillbillies, comes about how they were talking about how women have and deserve rights. The, the weird feminist stance from these two guys who are pretty out there in so many other ways. That first movie was more innocent, too, like the thing with the guy about the not joke or the driving instructor. That was just him, you know, messing with people, the humor being their reaction to his lunacy. This movie is much more politically focused or dealing with big issues like COVID. And I know it was a necessity, but I'd have rather seen Borat more as Borat interviewing people in this movie as opposed to her doing it or him having to dress in other disguises. Um, but, you know, 
they couldn't do it because people know who Borat is now. And, you know, you take away the scripted stuff that sort of ties the story together, and there's really not a whole lot of Borat in this movie at all. I don't want to ruin the ending, but I do want to be on the record as saying that was genius. It apes a popular movie ending in just the best way. It's obviously super fake, but it feels, you know, organic to the story that the rest of the movie was. So I, I laughed a lot. I enjoyed that so much. I would like to hear more about how they put these things together. Like, they must have to take what they can get interviewing people first and then write the rest of the movie around it to fit that. Like, if they couldn't get Giuliani, but they got someone else in Trump's inner circle, that affects a lot of the rest of the movie that comes before it. So I guess they must have worked backwards on that one. And I wonder how many scenarios, you know, just go nowhere because people are more media savvy now than they used to be. And again, like we've been saying, he's recognizable. But uh, he did it somehow. He got through it. He did it during the pandemic, a lot of it as well, obviously, by uh, the looks of it. I think that was my favorite scene where he's up on stage doing the song and and his two buddies these hillbilly guys are out in the crowd and they're they're just helping him try to track down his daughter at that point i I thought that was amazing how he got those guys on board um it's a fun movie like you said i really enjoyed it and i think another reason why i I really enjoyed this one is because we weren't expecting it like five or six weeks ago we didn't even know this was the thing and now here we are reviewing borat 2 just out of the blue but i'll i'm with you i'm going to give it four couch cushions out of uh five breath up next one of the finest episodes of television i have ever seen in season three of the crown you're listening to the couch potatoes i'm brett he's jeff we are the couch potatoes and as i explained last week i started watching the crown on Netflix in anticipation of the forthcoming release of season four on November 15th, a season which will feature Princess Diana. A lot of people are excited about that, so I figured I should finally get on board with this show. And I should actually mention something I meant to mention during the Mandalorian thing, because the Mandalorian, I just Googled how many people watched the Mandalorian, and I found this article from sci-fi.com. And this is back from March 2020. The Mandalorian dethrones Stranger Things as most watched original streaming series. Now, they, uh, they use something called demand expressions. And they, they point to, for example, the week of November 17th to the 23rd of last year, the hit series garnered 100.3 million demand expressions. Whatever the heck that means, it's the the data firm's measurement unit reflecting the desire, engagement, and viewership of a series weighted by importance. That's from Parrot Analytics. I don't know how any of the the streaming stuff works in terms of how they measure it. But The Mandalorian was first, Stranger Things second with 81 million, Titans, that DC show, is third at 71 million, and The Crown is fourth at 41 million. So... I didn't quite realize how many people watch this, but a lot a lot of people are excited about season four. So last week I touched on the first season and how I just started season two. I've now completed season two, and I'm three episodes into season three. Everyone is delighted with the new profile, ma'am, which they feel to be an elegant reflection of Her Majesty's transition from young woman to... Old bet. Settled sovereign. Hmm. Just the tiniest changes. A great many changes. Nothing one can do about it. One just has to get on with it. So season two, by the way, was excellent. Season one was great. Season two was great. Uh, Season two covers a time period from 1956 to 1964. And season three 
there is a jarring change. The entire cast is different, except for one scene where John Lithgow returns as Winston Churchill, but everyone else is different. The Queen was played by Claire Foy in the first two seasons, now played by Olivia Colman. Prince Philip was played by Matt Smith, now played by Tobias Menzies. Princess Margaret, the Queen's sister, was played by Vanessa Kirby, now played by Helena Bonham Carter. All of the supporting roles were updated as well, uh, to the point where there were certain characters I didn't actually know who they were supposed to be. And uh, the change was done to reflect how everyone is aging. And hey, that's fine. But the show doesn't really jump in time. Season three starts pretty much where season two ended in 1964. Olivia Coleman is 10 years older than Claire Foy. Tobias Menzies is eight years older than Matt Smith. Helena Bonham Carter is 22 years older than Vanessa Kirby. She's 54 years old. Vanessa Kirby is 32. And Bonham Carter is four inches shorter. So it's just, it's quite a radical change. And it was really distracting at first. Don't get me wrong. All of the new actors are wonderful actors. But it was just kind of a strange transition and almost felt unnecessary. And I guess I'd become attached to the characters played by those actors. So now I got to get used to a whole new crew. It's almost like watching a different show. Tobias Menzies was maybe the easiest transition because his physicality appears to be almost identical to that of Matt Smith. And there is zero difference in Prince Philip's unique accent. They they both nail this accent. They sound the same, but Menzies' voice is way deeper than Matt Smith. So even that was distracting. But, you know, what the hell? I mean, there's, I can't, there's no point in complaining about it. I think, the old, you know, the old actors are gone. The new actors are in. Let's get on with the show. I think people were protesting online. They wanted uh, Netflix to get rid of Olivia Coleman and bring back Claire Foy, but whatever. One of the things I enjoy about this show is how it showcases a tradition, i.e. the royal family and all of the stuff that comes with it. It's a tradition that the world, in part, is struggling to hang on to or see value in in season two. President Kennedy comes for a visit, played, by the way, by uh, Michael C. Hall, Dexter. Uh, President Kennedy comes for a visit, and when he first visits the Queen, he and Jackie Kennedy completely botch the initial meeting. You know, there's protocol. The president goes first. You say she's your majesty. You bow. You curtsy. They they just screwed it all up. And watching the fuddy-duddies freak out on the sideline was quite amusing because in the big picture... <laughs> Is it really that big a deal if you forget to curtsy or if you call her your royal majesty instead of your highness or whatever? Um, And it also, I think, highlights for them that people uh, are caring maybe just a little bit less and less about the crown and even Britain as a whole. And it's a reminder that at in this time that they're just not the world power they used to be. And maybe the crown to them is the last line of defense. So uh, having said all that, I what I really wanted to focus on here is the third episode of season three. It is one of the most emotional, one of the most heartbreaking, and quite frankly, one of the finest, as I mentioned, one of the finest episodes of television I've ever seen. It features a disaster in Wales in 1966 in a village called Aberfan. It was a disaster involving mining waste, coal sludge, called a spoil tip. It's basically this massive pile of coal sludge 
slides down a mountainside after the area had been hit by more rain than usual. And apparently there was a spring running underneath this coal tip as well. And it essentially bulldozed a school while the kids were inside. 144 people died in this tragedy, including 116 children. I had never heard of this disaster. Maybe that's one of the reasons why it affected me so much. Maybe it's because it was kids. And maybe it's because the neglect that led to this tragedy was so avoidable. I don't know. But it was such a beautiful episode of television. And I am not ashamed to admit I more or less wept for most of it. And the tie-in to The Crown had to do with the criticism that the Queen and the Crown took for so long for her to visit. I think it took her over a week to finally go to Wales. I don't want to reveal everything that happens here. I mean, you, it's, uh, this is obviously historical, but I didn't know about this disaster. And uh, it's just such a moving episode, all while showing that as she's aging, she seems to be losing some of her fire. She's firmly entrenched in her role. She no longer wants to fight whatever handcuffs she's wearing because of the crown she carries. And in particular, there was one po- just such a powerful scene where they're recovering bodies and hoping to find survivors. And at one point, someone blows a whistle and tells everyone to shut up and they, because they think maybe they heard someone in the rubble. Dozens of people who are working come to a standstill and hold their breath. The scene maybe lasted 20 seconds, but to watch dozens of people all stop what they are doing on the faint hope that maybe, just maybe, they found a survivor, that maybe they can save one human life, I was moved and shaken And then later in the episode, the queen is presented with a card from the remaining children of Aberfan. And I just broke down. Uh, A, because it should be the queen giving out cards, not the remaining children. And even just hearing those words together. Here's a card from what kids we have left. I was gutted. Uh, It was just, it was so beautiful. Such a beautiful episode about the preservation of life. How important it is for people to work together to preserve human life. Maybe it hit me hard because of what we're going through right now. I don't know. I just know that I haven't been this moved since I watched United 93. For the first time I watched that as the plane was going down and the passengers made their last stand as they stormed a cockpit. I knew the ending. You know the plane's going down. And you know that all those brave souls who gave their lives standing up to terrorists who wanted to use the plane as a weapon of destruction. In this episode, 116 children are killed in a horrific event. And I never even heard of this event. So thanks to the Crown... A lot more people on this planet now know of the Aberfan disaster. Various people have told me they like season three the least of the first three seasons, likely for reasons I've pointed out regarding the cast. I'll make my full judgment upon completion of season three. But overall, it's such a good show. And like I said, that episode is unforgettable. At the pace I'm on, might be able to dive into season four of The Crown at some point this weekend, but I won't be able to say anything about it until November 9th. So on the November 12th edition of The Couch Potatoes, I will have a review of season four of The Crown, just ahead of its November 15th release. Uh, Already, Jeff, a few people are saying, you already get to see season four? Come on, man. So, yeah. Nice. Yeah, I got to get on board with that. I would. I think I'm going to like season three the most because a, I like sad stories a lot. B, I love Olivia Coleman. I, I am on board for whatever she does. She was in that show Fleabag on Amazon a couple years ago, and she's hilarious in that. And obviously, you know, this isn't a comedy show. She's just a great actress, and she's an Oscar-winning actress. So I, I I'm on board for uh, The Crown. I got to. I got to catch up some point. Yeah, I loved Olivia Coleman in Broadchurch. I mean, it doesn't matter what she's in; she's great. It was it's original just, Office. 
Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. But it's just it's hard to accept her in this role, I think, because Claire Foy was so good in it.、Uh, so it's probably weird for Olivia Coleman to be overshadowed by somebody. But I'm only three episodes into Olivia Coleman's reign as the queen, so we'll see how it plays out over the next few episodes and into season four. In a moment, Jeff revisits. The MCU, some forgotten corners of the MCU. I want to hear this next. You're listening to the Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff. He's Brett. And one thing I have not done at all during the pandemic is watch any Marvel movies. Love the MCU. I own a bunch of them on Blu-ray. I also have Disney Plus, so I have access to many more. But I just haven't felt the urge since March for some reason to watch any of them. I did watch one, I should say. I watched Black Panther the weekend that Chadwick Boseman died. Other than that, haven't been in the mood. Instead, you know, I had my big Cheers rewatch. I've been watching a lot of dad movies. The MCU sort of fits in with those, but I just hadn't been. Interested in superheroes until now. I've decided to rewatch the series. I haven't seen a lot of the older ones in several years, so I think a lot of it'll feel quite fresh. I've also noticed lately that I've been wasting a lot of time at night trying to pick a movie to watch. So I thought, hey, if I just go through the MCU movies, that'll make the decision for me for. Many nights to come, and I'm not starting right at the beginning though, because I did rewatch Iron Man one around Christmas time last year, so that was still pretty fresh in my head. And I discovered this week I have no way to watch The Incredible Hulk; it's not streaming anywhere. Fine by me. Never really liked it much anyway. So my journey began this week, Brett, with Iron Man two. I am Iron Man. The suit and I are one. They will be blood in the water, and the sharks will come. You don't have to do this alone. Come on! Is that dirty enough for you? It's getting there. Rated PG-13. Iron Man 2 came out in 2010 to pretty decent reviews. History's been a little less kind to the movie than it really deserves. This movie, Thor: The Dark World, and The Incredible Hulk, widely regarded as probably the bottom three MCU movies, but that just speaks to the quality of the other movies. That said, Iron Man 2 is not without its issues. To me, the worst offender is the bad guy. Kind of sucks. Not so much the Mickey Rourke character, who's a Brutish Russian scientist with a personal grudge against Robert Downey Jr.'s Tony Stark, but the Sam Rockwell character—he's a rival arms manufacturer who hates Iron Man. Rockwell's a terrific actor, but his character here I just find kind of irritating. He's just too over the top. The structure of the movie is also kind of weird. There's not a whole lot of action until the end. There's a racetrack fight and a hand-to-hand fight between. A drunken Iron Man and War Machine, which I had forgotten about, and that plays out more like buddies wrestling. There's no stakes, you know, no one's going to get hurt. The big finale, though, is pretty impre- impressive,、uh, but even that is mostly Iron Man and War Machine fighting drones. And I hate when people fight against robots because that's just less interesting than the filmmakers think it is. The other weird part is halfway through the movie, the story changes. It adds Samuel L. Jackson's Nick Fury and that whole side of things, which was absent from the whole first half of the movie. It sort of feels like it was all written by committee, even though my man Justin Theroux from The Leftovers is the only credited screenwriter. However, there is much to love about Iron Man too, especially in hindsight. We see some of the earliest building blocks to the Avengers. We meet Scarlett Johansson's Black Widow for the 
first time. We get John Slattery in old film footage as Tony Stark's dad for the first time. I totally forgot he was in this. I thought he first appeared in Captain America Civil War. And I forgot about Agent Coulson, played by Clark Gregg. He was one of my favorite characters in Phase 1, and I was bummed when he left for the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. show. The real highlight, though, the thing that keeps this movie together is Robert Downey Jr.'s performance. We probably started taking him for granted as the series wore on, but being away from it all these months, I was restruck by how charismatic he is. Remember when this all began, how they announced Robert Downey Jr. was going to play Iron Man, and everyone was like, huh, what, him, who? Little did we know it would be one of the most important casting decisions in the history of cinema. So that was a fun rewatch this week. The next little run only gets better and better with the first Thor, Captain America, and Avengers movies. Uh, I don't think I'm going to binge them all in a couple weeks or anything, but I am looking forward to knowing what I'll be watching on a Sunday night or a Tuesday afternoon for the next couple of months at the very least. I also rewatched a classic this week uh, in honor of Halloween, Brett. I watched Ghostbusters. Ghosts, they're real. They're here, and someone's got to stop them. It's a job for professionals. It's a job for the Ghostbusters. Hey, anybody see a ghost? They're the best. Oh. The brave. The only. Ghostbusters. Coming to save the world this summer. We're ready to believe you. Who you gonna call? Rated PG. This one's always been a favorite of mine, and I was really struck on this watch. Just what a solidly put-together movie it is. It is so well-written and so well-done. And I didn't watch it to watch it for myself. I actually wanted to show it to my girlfriend's boys. One of them is 10, the other 13. The 10-year-old may be just a hair too young still. He seemed fine, and I didn't hear about nightmares or anything, but I also sensed that he was maybe putting on a braver face for me than he was really feeling. But he's good. He handled it much better than I did when I first saw it, Brett. I mean, I was only 8 when I saw it, but I had nightmares for weeks. The 13-year-old had no problem. He laughed, though, at the special effects. Those aren't uh, aging well for kids who've been who've grown up in the 21st century. So I think he likes the newer ones with Kristen Wiig and Melissa McCarthy more. Either way, we're all excited for that new one that was supposed to come out this year and will come out next year or sometime in the future. We've actually got a Ghostbusters to look forward to. And if you want to go see Ghostbusters on the big screen, it is back in theaters this weekend alongside Poltergeist and a new scary movie called Come Play, which I probably wouldn't even bother. That's all the time we've got. I'm Brett. He's Jeff. We are the Couch Potatoes. Remember, if it requires getting up off the couch, don't bother.